You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading comes from 1 John 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we, do thank, we are thankful for your word. We do pray that the words that we just sang, taken from the psalm that it's taken from, that these words are often higher than the uh, hopes of our heart, that we do trust you in whatever you do, that we will sing your word in whatever we say. Yeah, we pray that as a result of this evening together today, of sitting under your word, that that might be more true of us, that we might be people of your word, that we might be people of Christ, that we might be people uh, sealed and walking in the light of your spirit. We pray all these things for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. My name is Nathan. Tonight's a torch night. Yeah. Uh, Rachel and Aaron are going to be leading you out. If you're a fourth through a sixth grader, and wants to uh, get together with other fourth through sixth graders and talk about First John. You can do that together now. Sorry about the last couple of weeks. We've had so many last-minute COVIDs uh, come up that we've had just had to pull the plug on Torch. Uh, so you guys have fun. This morning, I got a phone call. Well, I got a phone call yesterday from Ryan Kelly at Desert Springs saying, "So, um, hey, could you preach for us tomorrow? Uh, because." Like, their whole staff got wiped out uh, with COVID. Uh, So I said, I would love to preach for you as long as I can preach what I'm going to preach at Christchurch tomorrow night. He said, that sounds great. Uh, I didn't even tell him what it was, but he was just like, whatever it is, I'm sure it'll be fine. Uh, So uh, this is round two of this sermon uh, for me today. Listen, it was so great to spend many months together in the book of Proverbs with all of you. Uh, If you haven't realized in our time together throughout the years, uh, we typically jump back and forth from Old Testament to New Testament books, even varying between genres. Uh, So it was good to spend some time 
um, in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. But now it's really, really good to be back in the New Testament epistles. Do you know this word is a fancy Greek word that we never use in any other context other than church contexts. Uh, but epistle just means letter. Uh, and these, these New Testament letters were spe- specific letters written by specific people to specific audiences for specific reasons. And these uh, letters, the epistles that are most well-known to us, are generally those that were written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, but the Apostle John also wrote three epistles, three epistles that we should not neglect in our lives, the epistles of First, Second, and Third John. But I think there's a reason why we know of and are more comfortable with the epistles or the letters of Paul more so than of John. It might take a little bit of work as we read and as we study Paul's epistles, but I think as we do, we can kind of begin to learn to trace and understand what Paul is saying, his arguments. There's lots of like, if this is true and if this is true, then this is true. And there's lots of like, what was once this is now this kind of stuff. John isn't quite so linear. Uh, My old friend Trent Hunter said that first John is less like an argument going this way and is more like a string of Christmas lights that's all twisted up and in a giant knot. That's first John. So good luck, everybody. Uh, But seriously, there's like lots of lights in a string, but then they fold up over themselves and repeat themselves all of the time. You can still see the, you can see, see the lights over and over again, but they aren't necessarily in order. And so many of the themes that we're going to introduce today uh, are going to be repeated over and over and over again. This first chapter is jam-packed. It might feel like it's a little overly ambitious to try to get through everything that you just heard James read in chapter one. But not only does this chapter kind of act like a table of contents, it introduces the lights that are going to repeat themselves over the next few weeks, but we are, if we are just going to scratch the surface on many of these themes here together tonight, we're going to keep digging and keep digging and keep digging over the next 10 or so weeks together. First of all, though, let's meet the Apostle John. John, the son of Zebedee, brother of James, is one of the 12 apostles of Jesus. In fact, in his gospel, he gives himself the title of the disciple whom Jesus loved. It seems a bit haughty, if you ask me, but I think he's just saying, look, I know that he loved me. And so he, he wasn't saying the others weren't the apostles that Jesus loved, but he just knew so well the deep love of Jesus. He was one of the three at Jesus's transfiguration. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was at the foot of the cross when all of the others had bailed. Jesus himself entrusted uh, his mother Mary to John's care. He is very much part of Jesus's very inner circle. He is the same guy who wrote the book of John, the gospel according to John. And we're going to see, if you know that gospel well, we're going to see many of the same themes uh, through John's gospel appear here also. Themes like darkness and light. Themes like being born of God, being born again. The the love of God. The theme of remaining or abiding in God's love. We know from later works, especially uh, in the book of Revelation, which John also wrote, that John uh, pastored in the city of Ephesus, among many other Asian cities, modern-day Turkey. Uh, But we're not sure, like Paul makes very clear in his letters, we're not sure to whom John is writing here. We don't actually know right off the bat what the context is and what the occasion was that John wanted to actually put pen to paper and write this thing. 
And because of all of that, there's been some confusion throughout the years about the author, is this actually John? About the date, about the audience, because he doesn't identify himself like he does. He just gets straight into it. No time to waste, he just goes for it. So we're going to too. John's going to set up this book with a major theme that we were created for fellowship with God. But then he's going to ask two questions. We're going to ask two questions of the text. Our first point is going to be fellowship with God, but then our first question is, what disrupts it? What disrupts our fellowship with God? And then thirdly, what deepens it? Fellowship with God. What disrupts it? What deepens it? So first of all, fellowship with God. John just goes for it right off the bat in verse 1. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Again, he doesn't have time for introductions. He's got something to say, and he wants you to hear it. Now, many of you might know that the word gospel itself is just a word that means good news. It is an announcement. It is a proclamation of something that has happened. This is what makes Christianity different than any other world religion, which might just offer good advice for how to live some flourishing life or even a life of spirituality. John is saying something happened. Something happened in time and space, and I've got to tell you how what has happened in my life, what has happened in the world, should change and affect everything about yours. And what is the announcement? What is this proclamation? Well, the thing that John cannot keep quiet about any longer is the incarnation. That doctrine that says that God became flesh in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He is the God-man. And those two words must go and must stay together. God-man. In these first five verses, John seemingly moves right away, seemingly to tell us perhaps what was going on in this church that he needed to write this letter about. There seems to be two heresies, two wrong teachings, wrong beliefs that if they are accepted will take you straight away from Christianity. Beliefs that will lead you to death. These two heresies that apparently were being taught was that Jesus is not fully God, or simultaneously by other teachers, perhaps, that Jesus is not fully man. John goes right at it, saying Jesus is God, fully God. Jesus is man, fully man. Jesus is the God-man. He says that he's fully God. He says that Jesus is pre-existing and eternal, that which was from the beginning. This calls to mind the way that John opened his gospel account in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, that in the beginning was the Word, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He has always been. And as we'll later consider, Jesus must be God, because a mere created being cannot lift us out of creation out of our nature, out of sin. We need the supernatural, the above or outside of nature, the supernatural, the creator, to come to the creatures to lift us and save us and redeem us. A created being cannot do this. But a second heresy that John confronts right away is that Jesus was not fully man. This is what was being taught. 
This eternal God, this pre-existing eternal God became a real and actual human being. Verse 1, that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. In chapter 2, we're going to see John talk about and confront many antichrists, many false teachers, and apparently one of their teachings is that Jesus only appeared to be human. You couldn't really touch him. You know that silly old uh, footprints on the beach story? Yeah, that's what everybody was thinking. Well, if that was true, if, the, if, if, if Jesus was not really human, then that footprints on the beach where Jesus was carrying you all along couldn't have happened because Jesus didn't actually have any feet that would have left imprints in the sand. Which, by the way, one of my favorite jokes in recent memory is that Listen, the next time, we've all had a rough couple of years, so the next time you go into a job interview and the hiring manager asks you, hey, can you explain this gap in your resume? You can just answer, yes, it was then that Jesus was carrying me. You're welcome. Uh, but this false teaching that was apparently swirling around in the, the context that, Jesus is, or that John is confronting here is likely coming from a Greek understanding of the world that saw everything that was physical, even our bodies, as corruptible, as inherently evil. That's the kind of existence that we should hope the good and incorruptible spiritual world can invade and help us to transcend out of. And so therefore, if all that's true, then God could not have taken upon himself a corruptible body. That would be inherently against his very nature. But John is adamant. That is not the case. We heard him. We saw him, and we touched him. A very real human being. Verse 2 of chapter 4, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, John will later say. 2 John 1.7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Even in John 1.14, he says, we beheld his glory. Likely talking about the transfiguration of this human being actually then taking on a spiritual glory of God. We saw it. And not only when he was teaching and healing, but then after his very resurrection, we touched him. I know it sounds crazy. We even thought he was a spirit. Jesus said to us, Behold, my hands and feet, touch me and see, for a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And so we did, John might say. We touched him. We put our fingers in the holes in his hands and his feet. We felt him. We touched him. So in the same way that we created creatures need the supernatural to rescue us and save us and pull us out of nature, we simultaneously need a representative of one of us, a new Adam to act upon or on our behalf. Or even as we thought through in the uh, Christmas season, as Augustine said, that this, he said this of Jesus, that without ceasing to be what he was, he became what he was not. Without ceasing to be what he was, that of fully God, the divine creator of the universe, he became what he was not. He became a human, the God-man. And what about all this? Why, though? Why does all this matter? Well, verse 3, that which we saw and heard, so that we might have fellowship with God. This is why the incarnation matters. This is why God came to us, so that we might have fellowship with him. 
Now, John might be thinking, all right, all you guys out there in Turkey who are going to receive this letter from me, you're Greek, you're Asian, who knows, you, you, like, you might not even be Jewish, you don't have much understanding of our Old Testament history, so you might not quite understand what a big deal this is. Because you see, people have never really had fellowship with God. Friendship, perhaps. Moses, though, one of our great fathers, was told to remove his sandals, for he was on holy ground. When Moses was getting the law from God, the people were told not even to let their animals touch the mountain on which Moses was meeting with God. Even that would kill them. One time, when the Ark of the Covenant was being transported, a guy reached out even with good intentions when the Arks began to to stumble, and he held it up, and he was struck dead. All that might sound kind of harsh, but it's not. I'll tell you why in just a minute. But for, for now, though, John is saying, let me tell you that the reason that Jesus has come in the flesh is so that we might know God intimately, that we might have fellowship, deep communion with him. The Lord Jesus did not come just to improve our relationships, to, get, to give us better habits or life skills. He did not come just or merely to save us from hell. He did not come merely to forgive us of our sins. He came so that he might invite us into the very life of the triune God. So y'all remember in my gospel when I told you what Jesus had told to that guy Nicodemus about how he was to receive a new life, a second birth from above. And at the Passover meal, after Jesus washed our feet, how he told us to abide in him and he would abide in us And that the very life of God would come into his people so that he might be the vine and we might be the branches connected so intimately intimately that we are receiving his life. That's what I'm talking about. That's why God became flesh, that we might know him in that kind of intimacy, in that kind of fellowship. And so verse 3, everyone who is believing, I and everyone who is believing, is experiencing this kind of fellowship. We are daily experiencing this kind of fellowship with God the Father. We can now pray to him like we never could. We are free to talk to him as a good father. We don't need to any longer go to Jerusalem and have a priest make a sacrifice for us. We do not any longer need to have a priest pray on our behalf. We have actual fellowship, continued and ongoing fellowship with God. And that's why I'm writing this letter to you. Verse 3, that you might have fellowship with us. That is, the same kind of fellowship that we are experiencing with triune God, if you come into fellowship with us in the same way, then you get it all. You're part of the family. You come with us, you get it all. In verse 4, we are writing these things to you so that our joy might be complete. John is saying it would just give us so much tremendous joy if the thing that we're experiencing now, you experienced as well. That would give me so much joy. Now, two quick observations. Why is John writing this letter? He'll continue to give more reasons as we go along, but two initial reasons that he gives are that they would have fellowship with John, that is, that they would have fellowship with God, 
And second, that John's joy would be complete. He longs for them to repent of their sin and believe in Jesus. Now, again, two quick applications here before we move on that I want us to feel over the next 10 weeks or so and really begin to live into. The first thing is a deep and sure fellowship with God. Throughout this letter, John is going to continue to rail against a false assurance. That is that just because you might, uh, if you were given a survey with religious choices, just because you happen to check the Christian box, John is going to make you very uncomfortable. Just calling yourself a Christian does not necessarily make you a Christian. And yet, at the very same time, he is going to go over the top to overwhelm you with assurance. To assure those who have fellowship with God. And so, if you don't truly and authentically have fellowship with God, I think it might be so that over the next 10 weeks or so, that might be exposed. And that's good. That's really good. If so, be encouraged. Because this letter is not going to then tell you, try harder and do better. This letter is going to tell you, know God. Love Jesus. Trust in his finished work on your behalf. Have joy. But a second thing is that I hope over the next 10 weeks or so, we might have a deepening and real compassion for those who do not believe these things. An energy, an excitement that if this is true, if all of this is true, then it should be that we have a kind of a lacking joy. That those in our life that are closest to us, or maybe even just some acquaintances, aren't experiencing the same thing. At Desert Springs this morning, I heard of an announcement that they are going with for the rest of this year. Remember last year when we talked about who's your one? Desert Springs is going for two in 2022. Two in 22. Uh, I think that's great. Let's go for it, everybody. Who are two people this year that you can share the gospel with? That's a pretty low bar but a pretty exciting bar. If that freaks you out, I don't know how to share the gospel. I don't know, even know what I would say to a person who doesn't believe these things. Let us help. We would love to talk through these things, help you uh, think through more clearly and how to quickly, articulately share the gospel, but then also trusting God to do the work of salvation. Two and 22. Let's share the gospel this year, everybody. Might, the, might our joy be lacking this year because of those who are not experiencing and believing the same things that we are. So, now before getting to this first thing that prevents fellowship, what prevents or disrupts our fellowship with God, John is going to give us a principle. And here it is, in verse 5. John says, This is the message which we have heard from him and proclaim to you. Now hang up. He's about to say, Here is what we have heard from Jesus. How would you fill in the blank? This is the message that we have heard from Jesus and that we are now proclaiming to you. What would you say? What's the most important thing that you would expect John to now say? Repent. Here's the message. Repent and believe that Jesus is your Savior. Here it is. Jesus is the Lamb of God, so trust in his blood. There is the message that we have heard from him and that we proclaim to you. Uh, God is love. God is a good father, so trust him. 
Now, everything that I just said, John is eventually going to say in this letter. All of it. All of that is super important to our understanding and our belief as Christians. But where does he start? This is the message which we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. Before we get to fellowship with God, the first principle that John gives us is that we must start with God. Over and over again, the Bible teaches us that for us to properly understand ourselves, we must first properly understand God. We must first understand the greatness, the power, and the holiness of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote this. He said, so I must always be careful not to start with myself. It is very difficult not to do so. Our whole approach to the gospel and to Christianity naturally tends to be from that of self-centered and a selfish standpoint. We argue like this, he says. Here I am in this world with its troubles and I am ill at ease. Yep. I am looking for something I have not got. I'm aware of my needs and desires. I'm aware of my lack of happiness. And the tendency for most of us is to approach the whole subject of religion, to approach God and the Christian truth and everything else in terms of my desires and my demands. What does he have to say to me? What does he have to give to me? What can I get out of the Christian faith and religion? Is there something in this that is going to ease my problems and help me in this dark and difficult world? Yes? I tend towards thinking those questions. But he goes on to say, the first answer of the gospel can always in effect be put in this way. Forget yourself and contemplate God. This then is the message that we have heard from him. Not that your needs and mine can suddenly be met by the gospel, but rather that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Immediately, we start with God and not ourselves. Because here's the thing, when we start with God and not ourselves, then all of the goodness of God comes to us. He is perfect, he is holy and righteous, the source of all that is good and right and warm and true. James would say that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of heavenly lights. Consider that. Every single thing that is good in your life and in the universe comes from God. There is nothing good in the universe that is not first emanated from the very character and person of God. And so, if this is what this letter is for, fellowship with God, and actually that is what the meaning of your life is, fellowship with God, then for the rest of chapter one, John is going to tell us what prevents, what disrupts this fellowship. And then he's going to give us some very clear answers to then what preserves or what deepens our fellowship. So now, what disrupts our fellowship with God? What disrupts it? Three things. Three things disrupt our fellowship with God. Having established that God is light and in him is no darkness at all, John is now going to confront the three lies that prevent or disrupt fellowship with this infinitely holy and magnificent God. Apparently, some of the same false teachers that were teaching that Jesus wasn't fully God or that he wasn't fully human are also teaching these very dangerous lies. And the first lie is this, that our sin 
does not break fellowship with God. This is a lie. Our sin does not break fellowship with God. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. There is a reason why people in the Old Testament were killed immediately when they came into contact with God's presence, either unmediated or under his terms. Darkness and light cannot exist together. They cannot coexist. Think about it. If, like, if you were in a pitch black cave and you flip on a flashlight, what happens? Do the light particles and the particles without light particles, the, this darkness, do they enter into this cosmic struggle of who will win out? The little part, pockets of dark float about in the light? No, the light consumes the dark. It swallows it up and destroys the dark. The holiness of God will not allow for the presence of sin. Dark cannot fellowship with light. Light cannot fellowship with dark. So walking in darkness, Lloyd-Jones says, represents everything that is opposed to God. This is walking in darkness. Everything that is opposed to God, everything that is opposed to his holiness and perfection, everything that is opposed to his desires for the world and for man. John is saying that, that by denying that sin is a big deal, that's nah, not that big of a deal. We actually are missing who God is. We are missing who you are. We are missing who and what you were created for. Walking in darkness or living in continual and unrepentant sin, John is saying, is saying that your fellowship with God actually isn't that big of a deal. Why? Well, let me introduce a category of thinking here that we're going to continue to explore throughout the rest of this book, and that is the idea of union versus communion. We've thought about these, this before, but when Marcy and I got married, November 18th, I said that my anniversary this, mor this morning, totally wrong. I said it wrong. I needed to be corrected. But it's November 18th, 2006. That is the day in my life that I entered into union with Marcy Henry. Did you know that? That's her name. Marcy Henry became Marcy Sherman on that day. We entered into a united relationship that I assure you, divorce is not going to break. We are united. And yet... There have been many seasons in our marriage in which our, not our union is at threat, but our communion is at deeper or more shallow, lighter, more whatever it is. Communion can kind of come and go, can not go entirely, Lord willing, but can be experienced more fully. If you married folks, I'm sure, can remember times in which have been just been better a deeper, more flourishing, more friendly even, more fellowshipping marriage. And that is what we're getting after here. If we say that our sin actually does not disrupt our fellowship with God, our friendship with God, we are lying. It does. It's a big deal. Let's keep going. There's much more to camp out there, and we're going to get, swing back around to it today, and we're going to keep swinging back around to it for the next few weeks. But there's a second lie that disrupts our fellowship with God. The second lie is this. If we believe that we do not have a sinful nature, we don't have a sinful nature. Verse 8, John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, 
and the truth is not in us. This is similar to the first lie, but John, I think here, isn't necessarily talking about specific acts of sin, but he's confronting a belief about our very nature. Apparently, these teachers were at best maybe teaching that maybe we humans just have some bad habits. We humans just are a product of our upbringing, a psychologized understanding of the world and our relationships that perhaps manifests itself into some occasional outbursts or slip-ups. John is saying that is not who you are as a human. You as a human are actually a person of the darkness. Left to yourself and apart from Christ, you are against God. Your very nature, the constant influence that causes you to sin must change. We can't just clean up the bad habits or the occasional outburst. Doing so is like if you've got a throbbing shoulder pain in your left arm, throbbing arm pain over a month, and you just start popping ibuprofen or Advil to make the shoulder pain go away, ignoring that this might be a signal of something much deeper, much more serious, a fatal heart attack that might be coming. John is saying, do not just treat the symptoms. We must get to our very nature. So the question should not be, why did I do that again? The question must be, what deep down here led me to think that, to believe that, to act that, to worship that, that whatever that action was, was actually going to make me happy, was going to give me some bit of meaning. All of that This action, this outburst is just the symptom of something much deeper within. If you deny that you are at your core a rebel, someone who is glad to remain in the kingdom of darkness, then you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. But a third lie is one that we often believe that we do not need forgiveness. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Why do we make God a liar if we say that we have not sinned? Because he tells us that we have. It's very easy. We are sinners. This is all throughout the Bible. In fact, John will say over and over and over again that the reason that Jesus came to us is so that God the Father might forgive us of our sins. The things that are wrong in our life are not just coming from a psychologized understanding of bad relationships that have forced us or coerced us or even led us to believe or act in such a way. No, we are at our very core self-worshippers. Ones who wish that God did not exist so that we can just live our life in the way that we want to. This lie is also similar to the first in saying, I'm good. Thanks, God, for the offer, but I'm good. Not only is my sin not that big of a deal, but it's actually not even sin. Do we do this? Are there things ongoingly in your life or things even from moment to moment in your life that you make all kinds of excuses and justifications for why it was right or understandable for you to act or believe or live in that way, to speak in that way? wasn't your fault. Lots of people do or live or act in this way. It's the big deal. 
God says, this is sin. When we worship ourselves, when we point our worship in things other than him, when we act selfishly, when we seek to remove him from the throne and and place ourselves on it, all of this is what the Bible calls sin, and it separates us from God. It is darkness and cannot coexist with the light. Now again, we should have spent perhaps a whole evening together on all three of those lies. But again, we're going to talk more about them over the next 10 weeks. So if those three lies prevent, if they disrupt our fellowship, our communion with God, what preserves it or what deepens it? What, how do we actually, as Christians, deepen our fellowship with God? So those are the three lies that the false teachers are teaching that we also tend to believe, but John says that believing those lies are not only things that we need to be aware of and pay attention to, but that if you do believe those lies, then your fellowship with God is being disrupted, if not entirely prevented. So, rather than denying that your sin does not break fellowship, or does break fellowship with God, actually believing that your sin doesn't break fellowship with God, then what should you do? Here's what you should do. Here's what we must do as Christians to deepen our fellowship. Walk in the light. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Is John saying, okay, you want to deepen your fellowship with God? Stop sinning. Walk in the light. Do better, people. No. Remember what he said, what we read earlier. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But he is saying that if we want to see God clearly, if we do holy without sin, if he is light without dark, then our own sin will be illumined. The flashlight, the torchlight gets turned on. We see our sin more clearly. Remember, if walking in darkness is being in complete opposition to the kingdom of light, well, walking in the light is the opposite of that. Walking in the light is the opposite of walking in the darkness. We are not perfect, but we Christians, we Christians are people that have been taken out of one realm, been moved, transported, taken out of a realm of darkness and moved now into a new realm. This is the Christian life. People who are living in a new realm, living in a new age, living in a realm that is now no longer in the darkness, but is in the light If we refuse to acknowledge this reality, to walk in this reality, then we are actually refusing the kingdom of light that we have been transported into. So if we are walking in the light, though still sinful, then a second thing that we must do, rather than denying our sinful nature, here's the second thing, everyone. Confess your sins. Both to God and to one another. Remember in verse 7, when we walk in the light, if we are honest about our sins, then we actually have fellowship with one another. So this actually means specifically. We don't just say, well, I'm just a sinner. I mean, God made me this way, or you can understand why this happened. I mean, just look at all the difficult things that have happened in my life this week or this last year. Undoubtedly, that is the case. But God's grace is bigger, and he will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and yet we must confess these things first. 
And so here's one thing of many that I have been praying that God would do for us as a church and through us as a church that we would become, even more than we are, a people of the light. A people, as we considered and professed tonight in our profession of faith from 1 Peter 2, that he has taken us into a new, he's made us a new people and into a kingdom of his marvelous light. This is who we are. That we, as a people who have so encountered the grace of God, we become a people that become a means of the grace of God to one another. Quick to share and confess our weaknesses. That we might together then take the spotlight off of that and then point it up to a sacrificing Savior. Man, Nico, I don't know when you came up with that thing, but that was great. Do you hear what he said? Do you hear what Clint shared from Nico? Hey, you know where sinners go, right? Christ Church, here's where we come. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, here, right here together. We are people of the light, once people of the darkness, people of sin, people of nastiness, still ongoing sometimes, and yet we are people of the King, people who has a people who has, he has brought together and unified together and to himself. We are a people of a different realm, of a different age, living in this realm, this age, together. So here's the thing. In 1 John, there isn't, like I said, like many linear arguments. We don't like, perhaps, from this book, uh, that there isn't like a timeline of progress or sanctification in the Christian life portrayed in this book. It's all just mixed up on top of each other. I'm just going to tell you something. You want to know how you love God? You love people. You want to know how you love people? You love God. That's going to be the circular argument that John is going to make over and over and over again, and it's going to make some of you crazy. But here's the thing. He's just saying, John is just saying, you have been people who have been taken out of the darkness and live in the light. Why do you keep sinning? I don't know. But just live in the light. Just keep living in the light. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Live as a people of the king. Confess your sins to him. Confess your sins to each other. Not waiting on you to change yourself or fix yourself before you do. It is through your very confession that God will transform you. And then lastly, Denying our need for forgiveness, instead, we trust in the blood of Jesus. Verse 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It's been said that if we hide our sins, God eventually drags them out into the open. But if we bring our sins out into the light, God immediately covers them. That's good news. When we bring our sins into the light, God is so quick and abundantly gracious to cover them with the blood of Jesus. And so we sing, often and around here, what can wash away my sin? Christ Church, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And this is what we will hope in and glory in for eternity. In the eternal fellowship with God that we will be dwelling in and living in a trillion years from now, we will not have moved on from the blood of Christ. It is what we will glory in. 
that God has come to sinners and lived and died for them. We trust in it when we first believe and repent. We trust in the blood of Christ, the love of Christ given to us through his blood for the rest of our lives. It cleanses us, it forgives us, but it also transforms us. The blood of Christ makes us more like Jesus, getting deeper and deeper into us. The blood of Christ applied to by his spirit is now what makes us more like him. It is the sap from the vine to the branches, keeping us, growing us, transforming us. It does not make us sinless, but it certainly makes us sin less as people of the light. So fellowship of, with God is what Jesus has come to accomplish. His message was that God is light, but that we can still have fellowship with him. We must see ourselves clearly because we see God clearly. Then we can get to our need for a sacrificing Savior. That we look to the cross, trusting in his work on our behalf over and ongoingly for eternity. When the cross becomes bigger, a bigger reality in our life, it casts a deeper and deeper shadow. It grows, it grows, it grows. The shadow gets deeper and deeper and deeper into the nooks and crannies, the sponge of our heart. The Spirit getting down in there, transforming it all, bringing all to the light so that God might quickly cover and transform. This is a good book, y'all. It's real good. We're just getting going. Uh, read it like 30 times in the next 10 weeks or so. Just keep reading it. When you get to the beginning or when you get to the end, flip it over and do it again. It's, it'll change your, change your life. Uh, no one sermon might do that. Uh, but this, over and over again, will change who you are as a human being for eternity because of the work of God in Christ through the Spirit. Let's pray that that might be so in us. Our Father, we do thank, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. You could have kept yourself hidden for eternity. You would have been good and right to do so, but you have revealed yourself to us. You have revealed yourself to us in this Word, this Bible, written down on pages that we might know you, but you have revealed yourself into, in, in the Word, the eternal Word, the person of Jesus Christ. Help us to know him. Help us to look to him and trust in him and walk with him more deeply in a deep and deepening fellowship into the very life of the triune God. We pray that you would, through this short but powerful letter of 1 John, that you might bind us more closely together as a church, horizontally, and that by this kind of love for one another, we might even experience and know and trust in your love for us all the more vertically. Transform us as a people. God, we pray for even some here who are here tonight who know that they do not trust you. We pray that you would soften their hearts. We pray that you would call them to yourself. We pray for uh, repentance. We pray that this might, not, might be a night of salvation, that you might save sinners. We also pray for those who are comfortable in their knowledge of you, but might over the next 10 weeks or so realize that they have not quite known you. They do not know you. We pray that you would bring life. We pray for all of us that you would bind us with greater and deeper assurance of our faith in Christ, of Christ's work for us. Make us more and more a people who walk in the light as you are in the light. And we pray for these things for your glory and for our own deepening joy.
Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.